This morning, we begin focusing upon the transition of the kingship of Israel from Saul to David. In some ways, this was a very smooth transition, and in other ways, it was quite a rough transition. It was a smooth transition in that it was God who had planned it all out. It was not a smooth transition in the sense that Saul opposed it in all the ways that he could. He tried to remain king at all costs. He was not willing to relinquish his position, even though it was the will of God for him to do so. So the theme this morning is God chooses a new king to reign over Israel. God reveals to Samuel that he has chosen a new king over Israel. God tells Samuel that it's time to anoint this new king. As the passage opened, Samuel continues to mourn over Saul, but it's time to move on. I say Samuel continues to mourn over Saul, for that was the last verse that we looked at last week for Samuel 15.35. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, but Samuel grieved over Saul. We also learned that the whole situation pained the Lord as well. For the end of verse 35 of chapter 15 said, And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. But now the time of grieving is to come to an end. Now Samuel is to move on. For if you notice in 1 Samuel 16:1, it says, The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Samuel needs to accept all that is involved with God's removing Saul from the kingship because God had rejected Saul as being king over Israel. But as Samuel reflects upon Saul's removal, all is not hopeless, for God has established another to be king. God has seen to it that there is to be a king to replace Saul. If you notice in 1 Samuel 16, 1, at the end of the verse, it says, Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Now these words, for I have provided for myself a king among the sons. The root of the Hebrew word that is translated into English as provided is actually the infinitive of the word to see, to see. So we could say that God has seen to it to have another king reign over Israel. So when God removed Saul, he did not act capriciously or in haste, but rather in a very orderly and just fashion, God had moved to remove Saul and immediately has a replacement for him namely David. Although that transition is not going to be immediate, the anointing is. God is ready to move on to the next phase. But furthermore, God has seen to it that the king that would reign would be a king that would do God's own bidding. For it says in the end of verse 1 that God had provided for himself a king. 
I have provided for myself a king. Saul had failed in fulfilling the responsibility that God had entrusted to Saul. 1 Samuel 13, 13, Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. Therefore, Saul's kingdom was going to come to an end, verse 14. But now your kingdom shall not continue. God is going to replace Saul with a man who is going to do God's bidding. It says in verse 14 of chapter 13, the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. Being a man after God's own heart means that that man is going to want to do what God wants him to do. Uh, What God wants is for the king to be an instrument of blessing to the people. Again, 1 Samuel 13, 14. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and now it tells us what that means. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. What we find is that the primary concern of God is that the king reigns for the benefit of God's people. Just as it is God's intention that God's people be blessed, that is his desire, the one who has the same heart is the one who also wants to see God's people blessed. And David did, in fact, understand from the outset that God had made David king in order that God's people would be blessed. It would not be about himself as king but rather about the people. In 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 12, we read these words of David as David finally becomes king. It says in 2 Samuel 5, 12, And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel, and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of the people of Israel. That was what was in the heart and mind of David as he began to reign. He understood that God had made him king, and he understood that God had made him king for the benefit of the people of Israel. Now Samuel has some work to do. Now that Saul has been rejected as king, 1 Samuel 16, 1, the end of verse 1, it says, Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite. For I provided myself a king among the sons. There are some differences between Saul's anointing David and Samuel's anointing Saul. Uh, a different container is used. It says, fill your, own, your horn with oil. And in 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 1, it says, Samuel took a flask of oil. Not a big deal. But I draw it to your attention because most likely the difference is simply that the horn was used for traveling and the flask would have been an instrument that would have not been as durable uh, in order to, to travel with. Which brings us to the most significant difference. And that is, God has Samuel go to the house of Jesse, whereas Saul came to David from his father's house, Kish. So when Saul is anointed, God goes through a series of steps which causes Saul to end up in Samuel's presence and to be anointed with oil. In this instance, God goes through a series of steps of sending Samuel to Saul, uh, excuse me, to David. 
so that David ends up being anointed. In Saul's anointing, uh, excuse me, uh, yes, in Saul's anointing, God had orchestrated the events so that Saul would learn some important things about God and, and God's providence and God's care. This time, God has orchestrated the events so that Samuel would learn some important things about God. Here, <coughs> excuse me. Here, Samuel is the one that is going to be taught some very important lessons by God. Samuel responds in fear of Saul, an uncharacteristic fear. We might be shocked by such a response, but in verse 2 it says, And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. This gives us further insight into uh, Saul's spiritual rebellion. He has not accepted the fact that God has removed him from king. But we're to see that Saul will stand in opposition to God's administration of the kingship. Not only will Saul outright reject the word of the Lord through Samuel, Saul will actually go so far as have Samuel killed. He's willing to go to that extent. And this is a well-founded fear on the part of Samuel. This isn't just some paranoia, but it is true. For we find out that repeatedly, uh, in later chapters, that Saul tries to have David killed. Uh, He tries to snuff out the life of the one who's going to be the king to replace him. So Samuel's fear is justified. If Saul hears about this, he's going to want to see Samuel dead. I point out that this is before the troubling spirit comes upon him in verse 14, of which I will talk a great deal about in a few weeks when we get to that particular verse. Uh, But there are some intervening uh, messages, uh, such as the celebration service, before we get to that. Application. This teaches us how far a person can sink. How one's pride can blind to the point of wrongdoing that would even take the life of another. The sense of entitlement that comes to a person. Saul believes that the kingship is his and that he can exercise his authority in any way that he so desires. And anything that is seen as a threat to his kingship in his eyes is wrong and is worthy of death. That's how arrogant, how self-sufficient, and how terrible uh, Saul's decline has come. So God tells Samuel what to do. Verse 2, Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. So the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Samuel is not to reveal that he has come to Bethlehem to anoint a king. Uh, It is God's intention that this is not the proper time for Saul to find out that David is anointed to be king. If Saul is going to want to kill Samuel for anointing a king, think of what Saul is going to want to do to the one who is anointed as the next king. Immediately, Saul would have been against David. As you read the next chapter, you will find that Saul has invited David into his court. David 
fights Goliath. None of those things would have happened if David had been revealed as the future king to Saul at that point. Of course, Samuel has no awareness of those future events, but God does. And so God's leading direction and instruction is intended to be a preservation for the life of David, intended to bring greater condemnation to Saul, and to be a lesson to all the people of Israel. So it's important that Samuel does just what God tells him to do. Application, God uses even our fears to accomplish his will. And God's sovereignty is a beauty to behold. God gives Samuel some limited instructions as what to do. The military operates on what is referred to as a need-to-know basis. If you tell people something on a need-to-know basis, you only tell them the facts that they need to know at the time. They need to know them, and nothing more. Samuel operates on a need-to-know basis. And I would submit to you that it's very common that that's how God uses his people. God tells us what we need to know at the time and nothing more. God doesn't reveal the future to us. God doesn't tell us how all the steps are going to work out. He simply leads us day by day and tells us what we're to do and we're to trust him for the outcome of those events. God does not instruct Samuel in exactly what he is to do when he arrives. If you look at verse 3, it says, Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and these words, and I will show you what you, will, you should do. So just go. Uh, tell them that you're going to have a sacrifice. And when you get there, then I'll tell you what the next step is. And most significantly, God does not inform Samuel ahead of time as to who the person is that is to be anointed as king. The end of verse 3. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. I will tell you at the right time. He doesn't tell him about David. What is important in this text is that Samuel carries out God's instructions for anointing the king. We should not take it lightly that Samuel followed God's instructions. Verse 4, Samuel did what the Lord commanded. Samuel did what the Lord commanded. That is so important for all too often people do not follow the Lord's instructions. Most notably, Saul had not followed the Lord's instructions and it cost him his kingship. Samuel could not have been the prophet that he was had he not followed the Lord's instructions. So he simply did what God told him to do. And as a result, Samuel had to overcome fear and reticence to follow the Lord's commands. The leaders of the city treat Samuel with great respect in verse 4. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? That may seem odd to us, but we, we need to keep in mind that Bethlehem was not the normal place of Samuel's visits. In 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 15, we found out that Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. And he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah. And he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there, and there was also he judged Israel. And he built an altar to the Lord. So Samuel had a circuit that he went on 
in which he was judging the nation of Israel, which he was offering sacrifices, uh, which he was instructing in the things of God. So when Samuel comes to Bethlehem, it's extraordinary. It's unusual. And the elders of the city are wondering, why has Samuel come here? Something big must be taking place for Samuel to become. And, of course, they want to know, is that good or that bad? Okay, Samuel, why are you here? Why are you here? Have you come in peace or not? Verse 5, and he said, peaceably, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and the sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Samuel now is going to learn some important lessons regarding the one who God chooses to be king. Samuel sees a man with similar characteristics to that of Saul and assumes that Eliab is the next king, verse 6. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. All right, this is obvious. This is a no-brainer on the part of Samuel. Um, There he is, Eliab. He's to be king. It's for that very reason that God does not reveal to Samuel ahead of time who it is that is to anoint, to be anointed as the next king. He doesn't tell him his name. He wants him to go through a learning process. His first inclination is wrong. God wants Samuel to learn what is revealed in the next verse. Namely that man looks upon the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. So too, God does not reveal more than we need to know at the present time so we can grow and develop in our understanding of God along the way. He wants us to grow spiritually as a result of our experiences. So God keeps us in the dark in order that we would learn to trust and so that we would grow in patience, so that we'd exercise humility and submit to the will of God and to create steadfastness so that we endure and we simply continue on in a life of obedience. We find out that the Lord's evaluation is different than mankind's evaluation, verse 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. This is the reason. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Each of the brothers of David are specifically rejected. There can be no doubt that David has not usurped his brother's authority. For it says in verse 8, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Verse 9, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Verse 10, the Lord has not chosen these. After all the sons of Jesse have been rejected except for the youngest, Samuel asks, does Jesse have any other sons? Verse 11, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. So they urgently send for the last son of Jesse at the end of verse 11. Send and get him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. Now, ironically, we have a reference to David's physical appearance. David is a good-looking guy, verse 12, and he sent and brought him in. Now, he was ruddy, had beautiful eyes, 
and was handsome. The same Hebrew word is used of David that was used of Saul. 1 Samuel 9, verse 2, Saul is described as a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. Now wait, because God said man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks upon the heart. And when David comes in, the first thing that's noted is his outward appearance. And it's pretty impressive. It's pretty impressive. He looks like the kind of person that the world thinks ought to be a king. Now, why in the world would God do that? Well, we're we're to find that David was not chosen because he was good-looking, nor was he chosen because he was ugly. It wasn't about outward appearance. It wasn't about he had to be handsome to be a king, or that he was too handsome to be a king. Rather, it was irrelevant. It was irrelevant. For that's not what God took into consideration. It wasn't his appearance. It was his heart. It was his heart. David is anointed as king in front of his brothers, verse 13. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. They stand and watch as David is anointed king. This is significant. For there can be no misunderstanding on their part that David was anointed to be king and they were not anointed to be king. There can be no misunderstanding. David had not usurped this position. It's not as though he had lobbied for it or somehow manipulated or stolen the right to this kingship. This was God elevating David to the kingship. Remember, he's the youngest. And in the Hebrew culture, uh, it would be the oldest that would be exalted. And it starts from the oldest and moves down to the youngest. And the seven older brothers are all specifically rejected by God. So that it can't be understood that this is an oversight. But God directly says, not you, not you, not you, not you, not you, not you, you. Now that's important. For we're going to see that the brothers are jealous of David when he fights Goliath. They have some not so pleasant things to say to him and accuse him of some wrongdoing. There can be no doubt. There can be no doubt. This was God's choice. This was God's choice. 
So once again, we find that the brothers are not happy with God's choice. They're not rejoicing in David's becoming king. And yet, this was God's choice. Lessons? We need to be careful. Because we may not always rejoice in those that God has placed in leadership. We may wonder why God would place some people in leadership. But we must remember that God establishes and God removes. And it's our place to accept and to rejoice and to acknowledge an almighty God at work. Like Saul, the spirit rushed upon David when he was anointed. For Samuel 16, 13, then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers and the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. Rushed upon him. The same is said of Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 10, when it came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him and the spirit of God rushing upon him. So when Saul was established to be king, the spirit of God rushed upon him. Now when David is established to be king, the spirit of God rushes upon him. But unlike Saul, the spirit stayed with David for the entirety of his kingship. For we read the unique words in 1 Samuel 16, 13, and the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David. And here's the unique element from that day forward. From that day forward. Continually in the life of David, the spirit of God had rushed upon David. In contrast, in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 14, now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And I'm sure that raises some questions in your mind, and you're saying, well, how does all that work? Uh, that will be the focus of the next message out of 1 Samuel, after we get through the celebratory service and uh, some other things. Uh, but that's where we're going to pick up, because that's extremely, extremely significant. Before I get into all the details of that, the point is this morning that God is with David and blesses David for the entirety of David's kingship. I'll whet your appetite for Psalm 51 when David confesses his sin of adultery with Bathsheba and having her husband killed. In that great psalm of confession, one of the things that he prays for is take not thy Holy Spirit from me. He in essence is saying, don't remove the kingship. Don't let this cost the kingship. And God in his grace doesn't remove David from the kingship. But it isn't just about David. 
It's about the people of God. And unlike Saul, who doesn't repent when he is confronted, David repents when Nathan says, thou art the man. And David humbles himself. And David teaches through the Psalms the great lessons of God's forgiveness. David proves to be a man after God's own heart in the way in which David seeks to honor and glorify God in his kingship. So what's to be understood by the statement that man looks upon the outward appearance and God looks upon the heart? For that is the most famous of the verses in this passage and probably some of the most famous verses in the entire book of 1 Samuel. So what are we to understand about that? Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks upon the heart. Well, the first thing we're to learn is that our values are messed up. Our values are messed up. John chapter 7, verse 24 says, Do not judge by appearance, but judge with right judgment. What we value as important and necessary in leaders is not what God values as important and as necessary. But not just in leaders. This extends to all aspects of life. We are obsessed with outward appearances. We are obsessed with how people look. We are obsessed with how people present themselves. Do they seem as people of authority? Do they command respect? Are they people that we look up to because of their physical appearances? Unfortunately, that even extends to the way in which people choose spouses, husbands, and wives. So many times, what people are most concerned about is outward appearance. How do they look? How attractive are they? But the Word of God tells us that we're not to be drawn to outward appearances. Let it not be that outward adorning of the hair, but the inner quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God, a great price. The heart, those inner qualities of faithfulness, trustworthiness, integrity, graciousness, kindness, a loving spirit, those are the qualities that really matter. And they are the qualities that last. We all get older. And we all deteriorate. And none of us looks as good at 60 as we did at 20. But we can grow to love each other and our spouses in an ever greater way. For we can be more loving 
We can be more gracious. We can be more kind and considerate when I'm 60 than when I was 20. And we can grow in our love and commitment towards one another. And our marriages will be stronger if we learn to look on the heart and not the outward appearance. For that is what really matters. It also means that we are limited in our ability to make wise choices. For we cannot look upon the heart with accuracy. We judge by what we can see. And the best of men are incapable of right choices. Samuel was a man of God. Samuel was a prophet. And yet Samuel jumped to the wrong conclusion as to who should be the next king. So we need to learn to be sensitive to the Spirit of God and realize that left to our own devices, we can make some pretty poor choices. So we ought to seek God's wisdom. We should ask for God's direction. We should ask God to teach us. So back to the looking for a spouse. We should be asking God to bring us to that person that he has for us, that that person that is going to be faithful to us for the rest of our lives, that person that we can grow with and establish a family with, person that we can love and, and to cherish, and not just rely upon our own wisdom, our own initiative, our own desires, our own wants, our own likes, and our own dislikes. Ask God for the insight, for the wisdom, for the provision, for the help. For what may seem so obvious to us may not be the obvious choice. It may not be the right choice. Ask of God, because Man looks on the outward appearance, and God looks upon the heart. Next, it speaks of the surpassing value of God's judgment. For God does not look on the outward appearance. God looks on the heart. In Jeremiah chapter 17, it reads, The heart is deceitful above all things, desperately sick. Who can understand it? Jeremiah says that we can't even know our own hearts. If you are an introspective person at all, I'm extremely introspective. And if you share that quality or sometimes uh, fault in any degree, you will know the difficulty of agonizing over your own motives. Why do you do what you do? How much is it in order to be seen righteous by others? How much is it a true motivation of your own heart, of what you want to do simply to honor and glorify God? How is it, much is it that you are worried about being ashamed 
And how much is it that you were concerned about acceptance with God? And the reality is, Paul says, I don't even judge myself. I don't know. The heart is so deceitful. We can be self-deceived. We can be blind to our own faults. We can be indifferent to our own passions. God is able to sift through. God is able to understand the motives. God is able to understand what it is that, that we are trying to convey. Have you ever, in good intentions, said something to someone that was taken wrong? You meant it to be an encouragement. They, they took it as discouragement. Uh, you meant it to be a help. They took it as a criticism. And you, and you find yourself, and they lash out at you, and inwardly you're saying, that's not what I meant. That's, that's not what I wanted. <laughs> that, that's not what I was trying to say. You can never be misunderstood by God. For he understands our hearts. Psalm 139. He understands our thoughts afar off. He understands what we think before we think it. So we never have to fear of being misunderstood when we pray. You never have to agonize over the exact words that you're saying so that you convey accurately to God. God knows. God knows. You can't be misunderstood. So Jeremiah says, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. So God is just and God is right. And God makes no mistake in his judgments, for he is able to look upon the heart. He understands why we do what we do. And then lastly, therefore, we should ask God to search our hearts and reveal to us our own faults to which we are blind. Psalm 139, that psalm that starts with the idea that he understands our thoughts afar off, ends then with this statement, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way of everlasting. The psalmist invites God to search his heart. The psalmist invites God to reveal our true self to us, to take away our blinders, to remove those self-misconceptions. Somehow, we are 20-20 when we see other people's faults. But we're very nearsighted when it comes to seeing our own. In the New Testament, it's likened unto a person who tries to remove the speck from another person's eye while they have a beam in their own eye. Somehow, 
We're able to see other people's injustices. Somehow we're able to see how other people have hurt us. Somehow we're able to understand what other people have said that have created difficulties for us. Somehow we are sensitive to what other people have done to us. And yet grossly insensitive to what we've done to others. How our words have hurt it how we have done the very same kind of things to other people that we find offensive when done to us. So it is extremely important that we ask God to reveal our hearts to ourselves so that we'll be kept from the great sins, the great pride, the great arrogance, the great going away. David's heart is tender. David could be instructed. Saul's heart is hard. And he refuses to be instructed. He refuses to accept God's judgment. And he does all that he can to fight against it. That's where we end this particular moment in the lives of David and Saul. May God search our hearts. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for your grace and goodness to us. We are thankful that you are a God who looks not on the outward appearance, but looks upon the heart. Lord, uh, help us to be a people that prize the importance of the heart. Keep us from placing such, such emphasis on outward appearances that we make some terrible choices and the people that we follow, and the people that we invite into our lives, the people that we entrust ourselves to. Lord, make us see the importance of those inner qualities, how that is what you're going to use, and that which is so, so important to us, that will make our lives so much more delightful when we surround ourselves with people whose hearts are after your heart. So, Lord, teach us today to prize the heart. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.